Now that the partial government shutdown is over, the Department of Health and Human Services is back at work, including resuming enforcement activities such as HEPA breach and healthcare fraud investigations. I'm Marianne Kolbesek McGee, Managing Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Stephen Morreale, Associate Professor and Chair of the Criminal Justice Department at Worcester State University in Massachusetts. Stephen is a former investigator at the Department of Health and Human Services. He also serves as the lead consultant for a Medicare contractor that investigates healthcare fraud cases. Steve will be describing how organizations can prepare for HHS investigations. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, to start, tell us very briefly about the kinds of HHS investigations you've done. Well, I was actually the assistant special agent in charge, so I was supervising many investigations in uh, New England and across the country. Uh, before that, I was with the Drug Enforcement Administration. But when I came to HHS, what I was seeing was we were starting to look at uh, at any number of fraud schemes uh, or attempts to build the government. Anything from uh, overbilling uh, services not rendered and billing for them. Uh, we were involved in pharmaceutical fraud where, uh, where a number of Actually, pharmaceutical companies that were manufacturing were working in collusion with doctors and hospitals and such. Uh, we also were responsible for investigating research fraud. One of the other things we were looking at was situations where people were not protecting properly information, uh, HIPAA violations and such. So it was all over the, the map, anything from small doctor's offices to nursing homes to uh, to organizations. In fact, I remember one particular situation where someone called and complained about a Connecticut hospital that had hired somebody, and shortly after they left, they realized that they had been breached, and the employee who had since gone had co-opted a number of documents that had some pretty serious information, including doctor's numbers and billing numbers and patient numbers, uh, and so there was a problem with that, and we had to go in and investigate so now, what are the most common types of investigations that HHS conducts? Well, at the beginning, you said that the government was shut down, and you're absolutely right, they were, but the fraud investigations unit was not shut down. They were, they were declared essential employees because shutting down was fraud. Fraud doesn't stop, so they kept working. But we're involved in any number of things, including DME suppliers that are overcharging home health, where people are being seen, even some hospice where people are being billed for but are absolutely not at end-of-life stages. And so uh, we get complaints from all over. Complaints can come from looking at the data and seeing spikes in billing. Other complaints come directly from competitors who will say, I don't like what my next-door practice is doing, and I want to let you know. Jilted employees who are not happy, they leave, and they uh, are not upset to inform on their previous employer. So the investigations run the gamut from quality of care issues, somebody not being treated well in a nursing home, to somebody stealing information, which is, which is very prominent. The whole, the whole cyber world has changed the way we look at it, and I think it's important for everybody to realize that not too long ago, within the last five or ten years, everything was on paper, and now virtually everything is moving to electronic. So we have a new threat in dealing with information that can be shared like that over the Internet uh, if somebody has it in, in digital form. 
So now, based on your experience, what steps do you think organizations should take to prepare for an HHS breach-related investigation? When it happens, it's important to figure out how it happened, and importantly, that the proper people are notified. And one of the things that's important is for an organization, if they find that breach, to begin to conduct their own inquiry as to what happened, where did it happen, where are they vulnerable, and what are the steps they're going to take to fix it. And that should be done potentially before somebody comes in. Sometimes investigations start because the company itself is reporting on itself. It's self-reporting. Listen, this is what we found. We, we have a duty and obligation to notify the government. And so very often those are pro forma investigations. Come in, see what's happening, see if any mitigating circumstances existed, and what are the steps that the organization is taking to stop that from happening again. In other words, identifying where the breach happened. In most cases, it depends on the investigation whether or not an, an entity is going to be notified in advance. I could tell you from a criminal investigative standpoint, it is rare that we give a call and let you know that we're coming. More often, the people who come at you that are government representatives are looking at either auditors or they are civil investigators, and they will generally call in advance, let uh, let somebody know that they're coming, begin to identify what the scope of their view and their visit will be so that it can help the organization prepare. But in the circumstance where uh, where somebody or two or three agents show up from the OIG, sometimes we would pair with the FBI, sometimes with the MUFUKU, the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, if there are some state violations, that uh, will be knocking, showing identification, asking to see the, the CEO, and and beginning to look for documents or to interview people. And in order to prepare, it seems to me that they have to prepare you have to prepare for if that happens, what do you do when they when they arrive? And to me, it, it speaks all about bedside manner. If you're going to have me wait in a waiting room with other customers and not treat me with, with respect, uh, given the position and the work that I am called there to do, then that's going to go against you. So in, in many cases, you have to have the people who receive these agents be ready to pull pull them out of the room and put them in a conference room and then get the, the appropriate company official there. Sometimes it's legal, sometimes it's the CEO, sometimes it's the operations manager uh, to go and find out what it is they're doing, what they're looking for. And I think that's important about being ready for that visit. And sometimes those visits amount to virtually nothing. It is just checking the facts and we're okay and we move on. So now, what sorts of documentation should an organization have ready for investigators, say, in a HIPAA investigation or a fraud investigation? I guess it would vary, but what should organizations know that they'll need to present? Well, it would vary, and it certainly is in a situation where if if someone's just dropping in, then the organization is not necessarily ready with the documents they may need. They may need some time to collect that. Uh, I've been involved in HIPAA investigations from both sides, from the side of the government and after I retired from the side of being a compliance officer and having to respond to the, the Office of Civil Rights with HHS. And so when I first made contact with the Office of Civil Rights after they reached out, they'd had a complaint. And I introduced myself as a retired uh, OI assistant special agent in charge, and asked what they were looking for, and I asked them to give me a little bit of time. And then what happened is I had had to go in and conduct my own investigation, find out what happened, 
where the documents were, whether there was a mistake, whether there was human error, and ultimately I was able to provide them with all of those documents. And more importantly, I was able to allay the fears of the regulator by simply saying, here's what I found. There were mistakes. This is what we've done to stop it. We've improved training. We have had a second round of quality check. And I'll just explain to the listeners what what had happened was it was simply that a, a patient had come in and was looking for a second opinion from another doctor, and they asked for their records, the medical records. The medical records took a little bit of time to pull together because some of them were electronic and some of them were stored paper historically in an off-site. So once those all came together, the particular person who was handling it printed out certain documents, went to the bin where the output paper was, grabbed the paper that was in the bin, without looking at whether there was anything left there from another printing operation, and put it in an envelope and sealed it. Put the person, the patient's name on it, and the patient came to pick it up. What we found in the investigation was they never asked for identification. That was a big mistake. They never double-checked the paperwork, and when that particular person opened the envelope, they found that there were two or three other patients' information that were there. And with some irony, the person who was looking for their records to go for the second opinion happened to work for the United States Attorney's Office. So you can imagine what happened when the U.S. Attorney's Office got hold of that. That's when we got a call from HHS, the Office of Civil Rights. So the long answer to your question in some summary is do the investigation, collect the relevant documents, and when they come, have them ready for them and explain what the process is, where the mistakes were, what you're doing to prevent it from happening again. Now, what's the difference between HHS doing an on-site investigation versus off-site? Or do all off-site initial investigations lead to on-site investigations? No, they don't. And, you know, when you say on-site and, and off-site in, or investigations, for example, if it's HHS and it's, a, it's from the regulatory side or if it's from the Office of Civil Rights, uh, very often that, uh, that investigator may never leave their desk and may simply begin to, to correspond with the entity, starting with a phone call, following up with a, a letter, and in that letter they'll request certain documents. They'll request certain attestations that you have done something to stop it and correct it, and that may be the end of the issue. And, and that's exactly what happened in the investigation that I told you about just a moment ago. But that was it. They were satisfied with what we did. If they have to come on site, again, generally they're looking for documents. Not every single document. They may select certain documents to, to almost spot check to see if, if you're doing things right or if they can find some mistakes in process. And I think what's really important for people to understand is there's so few people conducting investigations and there's so many potential violations, they can only do so much. And what, what I think is important is for people to recognize that they're going to ask, what did you know about a breach? When did you know it? And what did you do about it? And when, you, when you're able to a- answer those questions and it looks like the organization has a good management structure, has a good response to these kinds of issues, I think in many cases, unless it's a repeat offense, that it's, it's acceptable that some mediation some change in policy can be effective and acceptable to the government. What are the biggest mistakes that healthcare entities make when they're being investigated by HHS? Well, I think being defensive is, is a very 
big mistake people make rather than accepting, look, the cover-up is always worse than the crime in most cases. I think we've seen that over and over and over again. So uh, to, to accept that people make mistakes, to accept that training wasn't as good as it could be, to accept that a part-timer made the mistake and that you may have failed in, in providing as much training to the part-timer as you do the full-timer, those mistakes are, I won't say they're acceptable, but they're understandable. And so the mistakes are not being forthright. The mistakes are hiding, trying to hide something. And I, I can't stress enough what I said a moment ago, and that is the cover-up is always worse than the incident. And that's what gets people in trouble. It's lying. It's withholding information. It is. It can be something as simple as being asked for records, not doing a diligent job of finding all records, and the problem that people will have, and I really, really want to make this very clear, that as so many entities go to electronic medical records, they have to realize that they may still have records that are held that are in paper. And if you don't give the government all, then you've got a problem. And I think the supposition is when that happens, you're hiding something. And that can change the entire context and approach of the investigation. You can go from, all right, they're human, they made some mistakes, they're, they're on the right track, as, as opposed to, wait a minute, I have this document. They didn't turn over a similar document, so they're hedging or hiding something. Because remember, very often, a, a patient may say, I have this record and this is wrong. So we're going back in to say, tell me what record you have. Well, I have this record in my hand. If you don't give me a carbon copy of that or a copy of that, then I'm going to begin to wonder whether or not you're well-managed or whether you're trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Finally, any tips for how healthcare entities and now business associates under HIPAA Omnibus can avoid becoming the subject of an HHS investigation in the first place? Well, I think what you have to do is be, be proactive. We have to think about what are the important elements that we have in our custody? What are the important pieces of information that we have that should be protected? I was on a panel a while ago, and a CIO of a hospital was saying that they never considered some of the information they gather from patients as being something that could be of value to a bad guy, a fraudster. And what it turned out to be was social security numbers. And so think about what we keep. We have social security numbers. We have home addresses. We have names, family members. And we also have the doctors that service them, the, the HIC numbers, the insurance numbers, all of those things, that DEA numbers, in other words, for writing prescriptions, and physician numbers, NPIs, all of those things separately may not hurt anybody, but collectively could allow me with that information to bill for a doctor, for a hospital, or for a patient for things that were never offered, the services were never rendered. And what happens is these little groups will, will spurt up, they get a provider number, and they bill HHS, Medicare or Medicaid, and they, they may get a million dollars in a very short period of time and shut down. And now we have to chase an entity that has opened and closed that never really was set up to, to treat patients. It was really set up to bilk Medicare and Medicaid by billing inappropriately. Thanks, Stephen. I've been speaking to Stephen Morreale. I'm Marianne Kolbasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.